0: Hey,
1: Katie. Hey, Ben.
0: So data science, your world, and more generic general software engineering, my world, a lot of similarities, but they also have some differences.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what makes this podcast work in a sense is that there's enough overlap for us to find some common ground, but there's also enough differences that we aren't just saying the same things back and forth to each other. So, yeah, I would definitely agree with that.
0: Awesome. Well, let's dig into one of the differences here on this episode. Sounds great. You are listening to Linear Digressions.
1: So, there are many things that make data science and software engineering different. Uh, But one that I was reflecting on a little bit recently is my sense, and you should correct me if I'm mistaken here, Ben, that within constraints, kind of anything that's possible in software engineering if you
0: like want it bad enough do you know what i mean yeah i do yeah that's a good way of putting it i guess so i've been i've been reflecting on this as well um for a different reason i've been kind of thinking about uh the various hobbies that i have like i like building things with wood so i've got a screw gun and a saw and all that stuff and and like i could build I can I can say I can build anything I want, but I really can't. I'm constrained by the laws of physics. I'm constrained by the strength of wood and uh all of that. But with programming, with um computer science, you are not really constrained in the same types of ways. You're not constrained by anything physical. Uh unless you want to get like really, really in the weeds and talk about um, bits and registers. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Transistors. <right. laughs> But we're very rarely down at that level. Usually, we're just kind of thinking in abstractions. And that's one of the things I really love about software development is that you're, you're building with concepts. You're not building with physical things. You're building with concepts. And so you can put those concepts together in any way you want. And you can uh, create these generic concepts that can be used in other contexts and uh made more specific or more general. Uh, I don't know. I I don't feel like I'm doing the most eloquent job of saying, but basically we're not constrained in software development by the laws of physics or by uh, reality, I guess. So if you want to build something, you might be constrained by, say, the budget or your expertise in an area. Maybe your boss might say, you know what, we can't build that because you just told me it's going to take you five years. But... If you had five years to do it, you could do it.
1: Yeah, to put it a little more prosaically, like what are there's some simple examples of things that you can basically do in software engineering, no problem. So let's say you want to add a button here, you can add a button there. Like there's almost never if it might not be easy. Uh, there might you might be working with a library that makes it challenging to put a button there, but mm-hmm. if you were to tear the library apart, you could if you wanted. Really, really wanted to, you could put a button somewhere. Uh, you know, you could, let's say you got some database schema and you want to change around the schema to enable some new feature, you can change around the schema. Again, might be a lot of work, mm-hmm. but certainly it might possible. be annoying.
0: You might have to do a migration on your database or something like that, but yeah. you, could, you could get it done.
1: Or, you know, let's say you have a feature that's um, with a naive implementation, it's running at a certain speed, and your boss says, "I want this to run ten times faster." You might have to do a whole lot of work, but in most cases, like you can get it to go ten times faster. It might not be you know the juice might not be worth the squeeze, but it's very yeah. it's pretty rare that we're really running against like you said, you know the laws of physics in actually implementing something in software, right. So right, it, right. that was kind of, you know, some a few examples of things that I was thinking about. With enough willpower and resources, kind of anything you can think of building, you can build.
0: Uh, yeah, kind my of, world is uh, feeling really good right now. <laughs> but your, your world is not that way.
1: Well, yeah, and this is the thing that I was thinking about. And one thing that makes software engineering and data science really different in a way that I think is data scientists sometimes take for granted, but that sometimes leads to misunderstandings. Data scientists, on the other hand, we're usually doing something like, let me pick a a, a simple but very common example, which is a data scientist is building a model where they want to predict something. And that, uh, you know, what often happens when you're a data scientist is you build a model and it's not very good. And it might not be very good for any one of a number of reasons. And the reason that they pay you so much money is to be smart about which of those reasons you uh. should spend your time working on. You know, should you try a different algorithm? Should you tune the algorithm? Should you get more data? Should you manipulate the data to be in a different format? But sometimes you run into a situation and it's, it's not uncommon where you try all of that stuff and it still just doesn't work that well. And there's a conceptual barrier that there's a good chance you're bumping up against, which is that the thing that you are trying to predict and the thing that you are using to predict it, there just isn't a very strong relationship between those two. Like, let's say you're trying to predict whether someone is going to have an adverse reaction to some kind of pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. and the data that you have is their age, their race, and their gender. Like, let's say that the their reaction to that pharmaceutical well, just has nothing to do with any of those things. Like, maybe it's mm-hmm. whether they're left-handed or right-handed, or maybe it's their hair color, or maybe it's something totally different where they live. I don't right, know. Right, right. So you're who trying the, to build software were.
0: that's going to understand the real world, and if a correlation doesn't exist in the real world, your algorithm, no matter how good it is or optimized it is, can't pull that out.
1: Yeah, there has to be something in the data for for a model to find it like this is all about pattern recognition and if there's no pattern in the data that you have that's not to say that there's no pattern at all there might be one it's just not apparent in the data that you have but then it kind of means that it doesn't matter what you do to a certain extent like it's still not going to work that well and I think that this is pretty different from software engineering in the, in the way that we were talking about because in software engineering there's this notion and it it's not just software engineering right it's like a lot of a lot of types of work that people do it's like writing or i don't know business stuff where you're making up new organizational plans or operational stuff or whatever where there's some notion that if you keep working on it and you keep trying things that eventually you probably could get it working. It's just how much it's going to take for you to get there. People who are used to sort of that way of thinking about work can sometimes get pretty confused when a data scientist comes back and says, I'm sorry, this isn't working. And there's, there's kind of nothing we can do about that. You know, that doesn't sound oh, like
0: interesting. That's something. So that it's
1: like, just a foreign idea.
0: So you're saying like maybe executives at a company or uh, I don't know, boss people might be used to just saying like, okay, well, here's, you're saying it's not working, here's some more time, or here's some more money, or like, this is always a surmountable problem is, is kind of the mentality that they're trained to have by their in- interaction with all the, uh, these other industries. But with data science and machine learning, it's, it's just kind of fundamentally different. And so they may not have the right mentality when working with those people.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, science, data science is hopefully science. So and the whole idea of science is that we, we do it not necessarily knowing what it is we're going to find. And we need to be agnostic, in a sense, to the outcome that we get. Like, we could see something, we could not. And scientists are very comfortable with that idea that a good result for a scientist is having uh, a good, solid experimental design or data analysis design or however it is you want to think about it. Something that's, if there is something there to discover, ideally your your method of analysis will discover it. So whether that's, I'm thinking right now to my background in particle physics, where I was le- searching for new particles. So there the discovery is obviously a new particle, but it could also be something like some causal relationship between some factor and an outcome that you care about, anything like that, you know, statistically significant differences between two different groups in some relevant way. So we're really comfortable with the idea that there might not be a difference there. But again, that's something that um, especially folks who have trained in the sciences for many years, you know, they sort of take for granted in the way that we think about things. But that is a little bit more foreign to especially some of the folks that we have to interact with in most of our day to day jobs as data scientists. And so the thing that I think is worth calling out is that this is something that can be implicitly expected by Business folks sometimes, and so then when data scientists sometimes come up with models that don't work, you should keep in mind as a data scientist that you might have to do a little bit of education of your colleagues. Mm, Maybe even before you release the model result. Maybe even when you're talking about building a model, that you're putting in. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of annoying to do, but in some ways it can help you out later. Uh, You know, put in the the proper caveats, like if there is something here, we expect to see it, but just to emphasize that we don't know in advance that there's something here that's the whole that's the whole thing that we're trying to do right. and if there's if there's nothing there, it's actually not good practice for me to come back and tell you that there is because you know it means that at at best you're changing around a bunch of processes for something that probably doesn't work, and at worst, you could be actually making things worse um and kind of reminding some of your some of your folks who aren't as familiar with science how important it is to be agnostic to that outcome that as Mm. much as sometimes we're like cheering for one side or another as good scientists we should be open to any any result that the data insists on giving us
0: have you had to deal with this in your professional career a, a couple of times at least
1: yeah it's come up and I don't know that it always looks exactly like this because it, it can take mm-hmm. a lot of forms. But yeah, I think that there have been, for example, times when I've been building models and I've realized from <laughs> kind of the schedule that we've set for ourselves or something like that, that there's the assumption that the models will work or that they will you know have a certain quality by a certain date so that then we can do some downstream stuff using those model results. And so then if the models aren't particularly good and we either have to take a detour to figure out why and see if there's any other better ideas or to really convince ourselves that it's because there isn't, there isn't a solid relationship between the the data that we have and what we want to predict. Um, then that can sometimes, you know, what it actually manifests itself as is questions about like why schedules are slipping or why something isn't ready when people thought it would right. be ready. And it's a little bit right. like, well, you know, cause we assumed that, or let me put it this way. Well, we said that if it's working by this point, then we can make all these downstream build out stuff on top of it, but it's not working by that point, And we can't go build stuff on top of a model that's not giving us good results.
0: Right. And it's hard to remember that this is speculative when you're doing planning around it.
1: Yeah, especially when you're in the earlier stages, the more exploratory stages. So I think there's a lot of notion amongst data scientists and I think that this is that this is smart that there's things that are more in exploration mode or discovery where you're trying things out and you know that they might not work and trying to more explicitly partition that that time and space out from things that's more, you know, quote-unquote in production where there's there's less uncertainty. It's a little bit more like Like, a good example of a place where something is almost always going to get better, hopefully, is you have a a data set that you have a known model and it's built on top of and things are good. And you just have, let's say, some more data that you've collected. All the processes are still the same. All the data collection stuff is still the same. It's just more data of the stuff that you had before. Like, usually your model will get a little bit better or it shouldn't get worse in a statistically significant way. So that's like a low stakes change or update. But a lot of times you're doing stuff that's, especially at the very beginning, when you're trying to figure out if there's anything there for you to build on top of, saying that it's in kind of an exploratory phase sometimes helps tamper those expectations a little bit.
0: So does that necessitate like a a totally different way of planning where you're not saying we're going to do this and this and this and this, but you're saying we're going to do this And if we get this result, we're going to do this and this. And if we get non like a a no result or a bad result, then we're going to do these other things and explore in these other ways.
1: Yeah, it does. So I think that the exploration part of data science especially lends itself well to agile processes. So the idea of not planning things super far in advance and coming up with this whole tree of if this, then this, if that, then that, but instead making decisions as you go.
0: It's like if you're standing at the very beginning of the process, you're trusting your future self to be able to make better decisions than your current self uh, does.
1: Yeah, which in general is actually a really good way to think about it for data science, because your future self is going to know more than your current self does, because your future self will have explored the data and tried some stuff and maybe have some ideas about things that that are weird, that might be messing it up, or other things that you could try... The risk of this is a little bit that you open yourself up to going down rabbit holes, so you can distract yourself, and before you realize it, many weeks have passed, and you're not really mm. sure what it is you're trying to do anymore, <laughs> uh, and you're taking <laughs> yes. this like convoluted path. So, a good way to guard against that is trying to time box stuff. So you say, "I'm going to try. I have this idea of something that might work. I'm going to try it now, but if it's not working, by let's say." The end of this sprint two weeks from now, then we're going to probably close it off and stick it on the shelf. We might come back to it later, but we want to move on at that point for the time being to avoid going down those rabbit holes.
0: So you've mentioned several times that this is uh, very similar to the way that things are done in the scientific community. Uh, is there language that they use around this or, or particular ways that they talk about this if it's so common?
1: ah, uh, Yeah. No, that's a really good point. So in science, usually the idea that there could be nothing there, I'm, you know, kind of paraphrasing here, but uh, that's usually called the null hypothesis. So a lot Mm. of times when you're reading papers or something, they say that there's some null hypothesis, and then they're testing their data against that null hypothesis. Um, So null hypothesis, it can mean a a lot of different things depending on the type of science that you're doing. But to give a simple and pretty common example, let's say you're doing some kind of causal inference study. So you're trying to test whether a certain certain new medicine is effective in treating a certain disease. The null hypothesis might be that it has no effect on treating that disease, or it has an effect, but it's, that effect is no better than the current uh, standard of care type medications that
0: people are already taking or something like that. Right. Okay. So it's not necessarily... The, it, it, so it's more like the hypothesis that we have is not correct.
1: Well, I, th- I think of it a little bit more as like, there's the world that we know and understand right now and that we've kind of fleshed out. Here's a good example from physics that I know really well. So in physics, particle physics, what we're a lot of times doing is searching for new particles. And so the null hypothesis is there's all the particles that we know about and there aren't any other particles. So when you're searching for a new particle, you're saying, is the data that I'm seeing from my detector... Is that more consistent with just the data that I would expect from only the particles that I already knew about? And so if I measure something that's consistent with that hypothesis, I haven't learned about any new particles? Or is there something in the data that's not explained by the known particles? And is it more consistent? This is kind of the second part is usually implicitly like, is it more consistent with a hypothesis where there's a new particle there? And if so, what particle is it? And all this kind of stuff. So the null hypothesis is kind of like the status quo is, mm, yeah. is what we have. And then there's usually some kind of alternative hypothesis, like this medicine will treat this uh, disease or there's a new particle. And so what you're doing when you're doing a statistical analysis is trying to figure out which of your hypotheses is more consistent with the data that you see. So anyway, I think one of the things that's kind of noteworthy about all of this, though, is that as much as we talked in the first few minutes of this episode about how science has this great grand vision of being agnostic to the outcome that you have, and that a null result in, that's when you aren't able to disprove the null hypothesis, a null result is just as as important as a failure to reject the null, which is usually kind of what we say when we're like, oh, maybe there's something there and comparing this very favorably to sometimes the way that people think of data science, that's a little bit putting a rosy picture on it for science. There's a lot of (laughs) sociological pressure within science to not just run around uh, proving null hypotheses, which in some ways is legitimate because they're a little bit boring. I hate to say, but it's sort of true. Like, okay, we didn't learn anything beyond what we already knew, but at the same time, that should be something that we're really okay with. That is the scientific method working in a sense. And Mm. this has all kinds of, this has all kinds of implications for how science actually gets done. and, And to some extent that you should be aware of as a data scientist. So the idea of, let's say you do an analysis and you're not able to reject the null hypothesis. So you tweak it a little bit, trying to find something else where you, where there could be something a little bit more interesting well, now you're starting to walk down a road of what we call p-hacking. The exact provenance of that phrase is maybe a little bit outside of scope for this for this episode, but the idea is that you're kind of wandering around until you find some kind of signal and that that's a way that you end up biasing yourself and anyway, right. there's yeah. always there's all kinds of ways that this can get really tricky very quickly. So even even as a data scientist, you know, the place where this can start to get dangerous very quickly is you build a model and it's not that good. And so you try something else and maybe it gets a little bit better. So you keep that change and then you try something else and maybe it doesn't get a little bit better. So you roll back to your, to version B and then you try something, something different and it gets a little bit better. So now you're on version C and you can pretty uh, easily wander yourself into a place where you've kind of fooled yourself into thinking That you have something significant, but instead, you're, uh, you're kind of fooling yourself, you've wandered away a little bit from the scientific idea of, we just just have our, our hypothesis, and we're trying to tell if it's true or not. It's like, well, your hypothesis has changed so many times in the course of doing all of this experimentation, that now it can be pretty tricky to know how strong of a result you really have. And Anyway, how to back yourself out of that it can be uh, tricky to say the least.
0: And Yeah, it sounds like a rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, it's definitely beyond the scope of what we can talk about here. And there isn't really a perfect recipe for it, quite honestly. But it's a thing that you need to be aware of as a, as a data scientist also. that's the That's the flip side of letting your boss pressure you into manipulating your model until it works, is that it can pretty dramatically increase the chances that you're just... Coming up with a noisy result, but calling it significant or science or something like that okay. anyway, so yeah, not to be yeah. a downer
0: <laughs> well well. Yeah. well i guess I guess the takeaway then uh that I'm taking away from this is if you're in data science, you should be aware that um, other people around you who are not uh maybe who are not you or your immediate coworkers are working on the in the same type of field? You have may expect things that are just not possible. May expect that you should be able to tweak the model until it gets really, really good. When the reality is, you you might just need to back out and try something different. Uh, and that also a part of your job that may not be in the job description is some education, uh, maybe even some preemptive education particularly around the people who are going to be expecting results. So that way they have their expectations set that it's possible, since this is an exploratory thing, that you won't find something. And if you don't find something, that's just as meaningful as finding something.
1: Exactly. I think you put that perfectly.
0: Wow, cool. All right. Well, I uh, personally, I like things over in my I-can-do-anything side of the world. (laughs) But... um, But yeah, uh, it's good stuff to keep in mind. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content, too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are Ben at LinearDigressions.com and Katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.